Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we spoke to an expert on South America about crises in Brazil and Venezuela, chatted with the director of anti-gentrification group in Pilsen, and heard from the students of Yolo Cali about social justice. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for August 11, 2017. Buildings on Air spoke to the director of the Pilsen Alliance, Byron Sigcho, about how communities can fight against runaway development and find a voice. Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn airs the first Saturday of every month at 2 p.m. Um, first up uh, for the first hour, we've got uh, Byron Sigcho. You might have to help me with the pronunciation. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right, great. Yeah. And he'll be talking to us uh, about Pilsen Alliance and um, some of the things going on in that neighborhood and uh, anti-gentrification fights. Really excited about that. Good, good. Thank you, Kiefer. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for sh- showing up. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so, so we met a few weeks ago at um, a DSA meeting, Democratic Socialists of America, and uh, you're sharing the work of Pilsen Alliance. So I'm hoping you can just introduce yourself, talk about Pilsen Alliance, and um, tell us what's good. Absolutely. Um, well, my, uh, I'm the, uh, Byron Sikta, the director of the Pilsen Alliance, uh, grassroots organization, is doing, um, have doing grassroots organizing on affordable housing, public education, environmental justice, uh, immigrant rights and workers' rights for almost 20 years. Awesome. Um, and uh, that's, a, that's a line of work and the mission that we continue to fulfill in the neighborhood and collaborating coalitions across the city as well. And that was, it was a pleasure to, to be in the South Side that day talking to um, the South Side DSA chapter in particular. And I think yeah. it was a, was a great conversation. Yeah, it really was. And, you know, um, it's funny too, because this is something that architects talk about all the time, right? Is what's going on um, in, in in the cities, cities everywhere with the sort of gentrification issues and um, the dynamics in Pilsen um, seem to be like, especially like visible almost. And, um, you know, one of the reasons why I'm extra excited to have you on the show is because for, for a lot of architects, even though they think about this all the time and, and are very critical of it, um, we're also sort of, we're complicit in it in many ways, right? I mean, um, to my mind, architects are workers, right? So in a lot of, in a lot of um, respects, we don't have a, real, a choice because we have to work for uh, developers um, a lot of the time. Um, but, you know, the work that you guys have been doing, um, I think, really shows a way forward on like how how these fights can be won, and it makes them seem less abstract. I think that was some feedback at the meeting too. Was like, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of this stuff just seems like an unstoppable, unmovable force that is just like raining down <laughs> mm-hmm. on a neighborhood. But when but when you get into it and start doing the work. Um, um, it seems much more, um, I don't know, plausible that, that we'll win. And yeah. I think we'll win. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And, and, and uh, interestingly enough, right, it was being, we have had a lot of conversations with architects, yeah. in fact, about these particular questions. You know, um, we have conversations with the Chicago Architecture Foundation, for yeah. instance, right? Or uh, the Hal Paseo, right, yeah. uh, will affect the neighborhood, right? And obviously there's a, there's a, a fine balance between um, sustainable development and inclusive development. And it's like a lot of conversations that in the room sometimes um, go on without being addressed. I mean, we sure. tend to focus on the design. We tend to focus on particular questions, right? But we really have a holistic approach sure. of, you know, how the, the, the project as a whole will affect a whole community, right. uh, the city in particular, right? So we have the, the PMG, 18th and Peoria lots, right? right? And there's a lot of talk about design. The developer came already, I think, with 
three designs trying to and it's still not going right. anywhere, right? So there are particular things that you know. Well, it, let's talk beyond the design, right? Right. Uh, the implications, the history, the you know what makes sense for for the neighborhood and what it makes sense for people in general, you know, to to have these uh, these projects. So and we have had even uh, now some Latino architects yes. that are coming and say, hey, listen, I have some ideas. I want to be an ally, right? I, right. I, I, I am from the neighborhood. I, I want to come. Well, and these conversations are not easy, but I think they are necessary. Right. right? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, yeah, maybe you can give us some examples of like, or, or talk about the sort of fe- feeling in the neighborhood uh, about these kinds of things. Like what, what's what's the chatter? What How, how, do, how do people in, in their day-to-day lives relate to these issues? You know, I think the the day to day is complicated. I mean, there's a lot of questions that go along. Um, you know, the inevitability of gentrification that there's change and you cannot stop change, and um, and also the racial tensions that go along with that. Sure. Right? I think that's what we see day to day from a coffee shop that gets you know you know targeted to the other small businesses that also shuts down. Yeah. So there are real questions for real people, right? My my rent is doubling, I've been evicted, 5000 evictions in the ne- you know, so they're real yeah. co- you know things. But I think that how we shape these these conversations to talk beyond, you know, that the obvious, right? right. I think um, what we talk about well, this is not about, you know, keeping, you know, preservation is not keeping um, you know, one particular group as taking ownership of a neighborhood that is sure. immigrant, is being working class, right? right? But that very essence being at stake, yeah. that it should be part, you know, at the forefront of the discussion, right? The preservation meaning, okay, preserving the social fabric of the neighborhood. Right. And let's look at the history and how that list history should inform us, right? Of creating opportunities for everyone, <laughs> right? So for everyone who uh, sees the issue of affordability in a city that more and more uh, seems to be um, shutting down the doors for the more vulnerable, for the poor, for the and I will say even for the working class at this point. Yeah, right. And that was one of the things that I really appreciated uh, um, in our discussion at the DSA meeting was was you were you were really drawing this sort of thread that like. Uh, you know, the forces here, it's not like artists moving into the neighborhood, right? Like from who, who, who previously lived somewhere else or, or uh, even like yuppies necessarily. Um, although like those things c- can be issues, right. but um, really it's a, it's a much bigger picture of like sort of like the, f- the financialization of real estate and uh, the people who are, who are, um, I don't know, pushing that agenda um, that seems to be like the root cause of the issue. Issue. Yeah, and I think that's that's important that we you know focus because it's easy to fall into those the narrative. You know, I think the current mm-hmm. administration does a you know the forty fifth president does a, <laughs> already that a great yeah. a job of like dividing and creating hate you know hate and confusion right finding guinea pigs for whatever he needs right. to. So I think in that environment, I think it's important that we really highlight right well city paths right and that there are connections obviously, mm-hmm. uh, but let's let's focus on those right. right. So the latest um, you know whitewashing of the Castellan mural right? right. Let's talk about that, but let's look at in that right. So yeah, so understanding the 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 his the history on the building the the meaning the does great but let's look at even further and you see a developer who is buying uh, community centers is buying SROs right the single room occupancy yeah. across the city big donor Ram Emanuel right and contractor of a firm that seems to think that uh, making Chicago great again is a good thing right <laughs> so if you if you put it all together 
we're starting to have a, a, a more in-depth conversation. Yeah. And I think as long as we have that conversation, right, that the social fabric of the neighborhood, it is uh, a point that can be a unifying force. Yes. Let's bring together the people to fight these big developers that have a very particular ideology right. and are targeting a certain audience, yes. But let's have a way to address this issue in a way that we are giving people the information that we need to battle not only here in Pilsen, but across the city because these yeah. are the same developers popping up and there are big developers. Right, yeah, that is, you, you mentioned that in the course of doing this work, you get to know them by name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, and now I hope that more and more people say, hey, City Pets, right? Oh, I know these guys in Uptown, 130 right. people this place. So, and I think that's the thing that are gonna, I mean, and we're talking to some people from uh, Northside, um, Access for Justice and Wang Northside, they say, yeah, I mean, they're really tailoring to like the young professional did but right. also they are being in the meetings and say you know what you know i, I don't want to be part of that <laughs> that that you know they're, they're right. they, we know what the agenda is let's work together to make sure that their agenda right is not moving forward if out of like or uh, inability to work together or inform people but as we inform people i think that they're we're gonna be more we will have more a lot more sympathizers yeah. than what we think <laughs> What's Up presented the final projects of two Yolo Cali participants in Northwestern University's Social Justice News Nexus Fellowship. Gerardo Salgado presented Chicago Riding on Fixed Gear, Bike Equity on the South Side, and Jennifer Gallen aired A Bright Future for Little Village, Shedding Light on the Dark Corners. What's Up, a production of Yolo Cali, airs every Saturday at noon. Many cyclists believe that the South Side is being discriminated against as they have little to no bike infrastructure compared to the North Side residents. Pisano also speaks about bike equity and how Chicago has a lot of industrial areas which cut off many bike lanes and working class neighborhoods like Little Village and Back of the Yards. According to Active Transportation Alliance campaign Bikeways for All, 29% of Southside Chicagoans have access to a bikeway between a half a mile and a mile away. Westside Chicagoans have a 26% chance of this, while Northsiders have a low 18%. This might make it sound like a South and Westside resident have more bike land access, but the data is deceptive because of low population densities and land use patterns, including heavy industry on the South and West sides. There might be a bike lane throughout the industrial area on the south side, but because of the industry, there might be no direct route to bike lanes from nearby residences. Bike lanes in industrial areas aren't safe if the road is traversed by heavy trucks, while some of the fastest routes have too much car traffic for bikes to use, and bike lanes throughout industrial areas likely don't lead toward downtown or other places locals are headed. While biking infrastructure still needs a lot of improvement, Chicagoans are working on raising awareness on bicycling, educating people, and fighting for better conditions. In addition to Active Transportation Alliance work, Walk by Co. is a nonprofit planning group that manages a city fund education and encouragement program, the City of Chicago's Bicycling and Safe Route Ambassadors. These ambassadors work with school children, motorists, and bicyclists, promoting safe use of active modes of transportation and potentially reducing and eliminating traffic fatalities and serious injuries. Teams of ambassadors do demonstrations and have conversations in public areas like community events, schools, and summer camps. 
And this summer, they have planned to target Little Village residents and other Southside neighborhoods. Since the year 2000, the rates of bicycling have tripled in Chicago. According to the ATA, a few years ago, the ATA produced a report showing an average of 125 bike trips every day. Taking in consideration that the numbers are a little higher during the summer months versus the winter, when only about 40% of summer cyclists are still riding. Furthermore, the ATA has definitely noticed the people of Chicago are more likely to use a bike lane when low-stress bike lanes are installed. Ultimately, Mayor Pisano concurred that if all Chicagoans feel safe while traveling on their bikes, have proper information about their rights and responsibilities as a cyclist, and trust the roads and bike lanes, then they will most likely use a bicycle as a mode of transportation. I personally think that cycling should be a synonym for freedom, but there is no freedom when you are risking your life. Um, so for now, I just want to talk a little bit uh, of the aftermath of this project uh, and what I learned. Um, I'm not much of a journalist, and it was, this was quite a learning experience. Um, I was able and gifted to do articles, and you write stories for uh, Social Justice News Nexus, and to produce this, uh, I believe it's an 18-minute project and article. Um it was quite helpful for me because I took a year off from college. So uh, I really wanted to do something productive for myself. So this was a great way to do it. And it was a great uh, fellowship to uh, use, to do. But um, the thing I like about this is that I learned a few things about writing. Uh, I'm not much of a writer and I don't really consider myself a writer. But after this, I feel like I can do things now. Um, I feel more confident in writing. So it was quite an honor to do this thing, and it was quite fun and a great learning experience, as I mentioned. But um, after this, um, I've noticed that I kind of have the interest on doing more things. Uh, when I was doing this project, I did a lot of things in once. So I had to learn how to do interviews, how to record and edit. But I mean, I was kind of, I already kind of knew how to do that. But it, uh, this was a more difficult task because it was interviews that I had to implement in the project. And it was an 18-minute project that I've never done that. I've usually done like five minutes, but 18 is quite a handful. Um, but what I do like is that I was able to do other things like photography and kind of. So I did like three or four little things and developed this hobby now um, for photography, too. But um, now that I also learned how to write articles, um, I want to get out there more and, you know, do more stories and uh, raise awareness on others, on other events that are held in Chicago. Uh, possibly around the world as I do like to travel but um, for now Ch Chicago is my home so I'm going to be here for a while and writing more stories about Chicago and hopefully uh, the biking community realizes that uh, we have to stand up and you know fight the good fight and make sure we do a change for the community yeah I kind of like really my almost opposite like with audio <laughs> I was like more not knowing like how to do like audio since uh -oh. I I only did, like, one part, but I love writing, and I think that's what, like, I was, like, not struggling so much because I love writing, but I think that journalism, like, this fellowship gave us a big opportunity into, like, um, developing our skills on journalism. It was mm -hmm. super, super, like, intense with, like, writing the articles, 
And I just think that it's really important, like, for us to know what journalism means and what journalism can do for, like, readers and for the community, too. Because it's it's really, like, okay, you're putting all this work that you have done, like, research, uh, everything, like, um, knowing these people, knowing, like, the effects of the community, what's uh, the causes of what's going on in our uh, earth and mostly our community. So it was, like, it's really awesome that we could like write it into like a paper and then for it to be published and for people to actually read it and be like concerned and create awareness basically for the community and also like even people like outside from the community like the suburbs so that they could know what's going on in our community you know so I think that journalism is like that powerful for us especially because we're like really like well not so much teens, but we're the youth. So I think it's really powerful for us to just create writing, create uh, creative writing, actually, and put it as journalism and then just, like, create awareness with it. Little village London residents don't have a relief from the air pollution at the time. But now with the expansion of Unilever, the air in Little Village will be affected by the 500 to 900 more diesel trucks a day. After learning about the Unilever expansion plans in 2015, El Bejo started a diesel campaign to demand clean air for Little Village. So even just um, people, basic knowledge of their uh, breathing problems is um, important to us. But also diesel does let out PM 2.5, which are uh, tiny particles that go in deeper inside your bloodstream and into your lungs that can cause different respiratory issues. And it's more common for children who are still developing uh, their lungs, people who are active and pregnant women that have a higher risk of having some kind of respiratory issue either now or later on. El Bejo demanded a community agreement that would protect residents from the impacts of the Unilever expansion. Alderman Ricardo Munoz came to tell the community that the Unilever expansion was going to provide 60 jobs. This also appealing for hardworking families in Little Village. If the next generation gets involved in issues like Unilever, and if residents are alert, involved in demanding environmental protections and a voice in the debate, Little Village can still be the place I remember with birds singing, land sprinklers on big green yards, and mothers with kids playing in the park. A decade ago, the construction of Little Village Londo High School after the hunger strike was a community victory. Maybe the response to the Unilever expansion can end up being a community victory too. Bad at Sports spoke to Mark LeBlanc, owner of M. LeBlanc Gallery, about filmmaking, running a space in Chicago, and how the sausage is made. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. And I am DJ younger brother Ryan Kellyanne Miller, and uh, next to me here is... DJ older brother, obviously. DJ older brother. And we are here today talking with Mark LeBlanc, who said that if I wanted, I could call him a curator what are those events like i have not been to the la art fairs that we've done fairs in miami and new york and here in chicago um but what do what do they do there that's special um 
a lot of the events, uh, as as I kind of assembled them, uh, tap into different um, different avenues, uh, audiences that are in Los Angeles. Um, each year that I did it, I wanted to bring in a uh, filmmaker that had one foot in, shall we say, art filmmaking and one foot in um, more Hollywood traditions. So the first year uh, was Kenneth Anger. Um, which was a kind of a natural go-to for me because he's been influential for so many artists that I've worked with. Um, and then second time around uh, was kind of um, bringing in a, a teenage love of mine, which was uh, Roger Corman. Um, uh, so they're both they're both filmmakers that have worked in L.A. for a long time, and they both also have a perspective that I think is really helpful for um, people that are making, uh, work today, which is, um, when they both started out, Hollywood was a very different place than it is now. Um, and the kind of independent filmmaking, if you were to call it that, which wasn't called then, um, uh, they have, they have, um, kind of a experience on that, um, that when you share it with, a, a younger artist, I think, um, it's, it's very insightful. So, um, and then in the second year brought in, uh, we're working with a lot of sound. Um, we did, uh, a night of sound that was, um, William Bazinski and M. Gettys Gengras, uh, who were, were local sound artists. Um, and I always just felt that, um, sound was something that, uh, uh, was kind of underrepresented in an art fair and that we could try to create a space for it. Um, and it worked really well. It was one of the mm, really, really well-attended event at the fair. People just came specifically to see those people. So, um, yeah, but that's that's more or less it. I mean, I I go, you know, I go to lots of fairs like like Like, I, like, like you many do, of us. Like you do, I guess. And, um, and I always... Uh, I, I try when I did the events to stray away from um, conversations of panels, panels or whatever, critics on stage or something, principally because um, there's there's like two kinds of listening. You have, you have like passive listening where you're listening to people talk around you, like when I'm listening to you talk and I'm choosing things that come and you, go you can make fun of me about later yeah well um and then there's there's like really active listening and when you watch people perform or you listen to music um it touches something in your brain that uh listening to people on stage talk about um doesn't really doesn't really uh activate so well you, know. you came into it having a sculpture background right yeah that was your studies at an art school as a as a maker as opposed to Right. Most of my, like, aesthetic background, to be honest, is, like, in, in horror and science fiction. This is, is like, uh, rather than uh, think of it in terms of media, although I brought it up, it's, like, uh, it's easier to understand if, um, think of it in terms of horror, science fiction, and uh, um, violence, violence, sex and violence is what a lot of... Uh, my personal interest in psychosexual things. And so when you moved from kind of that, the act of being a maker from 
graduating from undergrad with with a degree in in visual arts to running one R was that a, a knowing transition like you're you're leaving behind making and you're transitioning into this uh, more administrative position or no 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 you know I I ran it in the in my third and fourth year of during my undergrad and um, my time making work like actual work was mostly assignment based. It was really, really uh, a short-lived thing. Um, I was always a writer, um, and uh, that's something I still continue today. I still don't write reviews, but I'll write uh, catalog essays. Um, that's kind of my preferred thing that I do. Um, and uh, I never really, you know, people ask that. They're like, oh, why did you stop making work? That's a question that comes up a lot, and I really uh, resent when they ask me that because it's it kind of misses the entire point of um, um, of being uh, working creatively, um, and it, they're, they're underlying it is this um, kind of the artist exceptionalism that like artists are creative. Nobody else is as creative as artists. And that's just fundamentally not true in the world that we live in. Um, Don't explode those illusions, though. We're yeah. still, most of us are still profiting by those. You know, it's not a question that comes up a lot, but it's, um, uh, I always kind of have a little chuckle inside my head. The Trump Diaries. Mueller's grand journey starts to close in as Paul Manafort's house is raided by the FBI. An advisor calls a mosque attack a fake hate crime. The Senate moves to protect Mueller as Trump rages. Trump gets and sends out propaganda. Justice Department warns leakers and threatens the city of Chicago. And the specter of nuclear war arises. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 196, August 3rd. Special Counsel Robert Mueller has impaneled a grand jury in Washington to investigate Russia's interference in the 2016 elections. This is a new major phase in the inquiry and signals the investigation is likely to continue for months. CNN is reporting that Mueller is investigating Russian financial ties to Trump's business and family. The president has called Mueller's inquiry a witch hunt. Trump previously warned Mueller that his financial dealings were a red line that he shouldn't cross, despite Mueller being authorized to investigate matters that arose or may arise directly from the investigation. And Vox reports that acting FBI Director Andrew McCabe told the highest ranking members of the bureau that they should consider themselves possible witnesses into if Trump obstructed justice. McCabe also acknowledged he's also a potential witness in the probe. And leaked transcripts obtained by the Washington Post show that Trump engaged in arguments with the leaders of Mexico and Australia during early phone calls. In the conversation with Enrique Peña Nieto of Mexico, Trump pressured the Mexican president to agree to paying for Trump's wall. Quote, you cannot say that to the press. If you are going to say that Mexico is not going to pay for the wall, then I do not want to meet with you guys anymore because I cannot live with that. With the Australians, Trump complained about having to accept refugees. Trump said the calls were the worst, the most unpleasant he had had all day. The leaked conversations are unprecedented and present a portrait of Trump as wholly consumed with his own image, as opposed to policy points. And Trump described America's relationship with Russia on Twitter as at an all-time and dangerous low, blaming Congress. John McCain shot back that, quote, our relationship with Russia is at a dangerous low. You can thank Putin for attacking our democracy, invading neighbors, and threatening our allies. 
and Trump endorsed a new bill in the Senate aimed at slashing legal immigration levels over a decade. The bill would represent a profound change to U.S. immigration policies that have been in place for over half a century. The bill is considered controversial even among Republicans and will face stiff resistance. The bill is being advanced by White House hardliners like Stephen Miller. Miller called questions about the bill from CNN reporter Jim Acosta outrageous, insulting, ignorant, and foolish. He then accused Acosta of cosmopolitan bias before apologizing, quote, if things get heated. Trump told fellow golfers at his club that the White House is a real dump before teeing off. Day 197, August 4th. Trump called the Mueller investigation a totally made-up Russia story and a total fabrication at a West Virginia rally. Trump further claimed that Democrats, quote, can't beat us at the voting booths, so they're trying to cheat you out of the future and the future that you want. They're trying to cheat you out of the leadership you want with a fake story that is demeaning to all of us and, most importantly, demeaning to our country and demeaning to our Constitution. In related news, the Senate Judiciary Committee is introducing a bipartisan bill to protect Robert Mueller and ensure the integrity of independent investigations. The bill would allow any special counsel for the Department of Justice to challenge their removal in court with a review by a three-panel judge within 14 days. Jeff Sessions said four people have been charged over leaks as the Trump administration launched a crackdown on embarrassing disclosures. Sessions said the suspects were accused of divulging classified material or concealed contacts with foreign intelligence officers. Sessions also said justice has tripled the number of active leak investigations and devoted new FBI resources to cracking down on leakers. Sessions also said the department was reviewing its approach to subpoenaing journalists. And Trump's nominee for the Agriculture Department once accused progressives of enslaving minorities, called black leaders race traitors, and labeled Obama a Maoist with communist roots. Sam Clovis wrote this on a blog post between 2011 and 2012. He has since deleted the blog and is serving as the senior White House advisor to the USDA. Clovis's nomination for the chief scientist job at the Department of Agriculture requires Senate confirmation. Trump will now take a 17-day vacation. After the vacation was revealed publicly, Trump took to Twitter to claim, quote, it was not a vacation since he'll be making phone calls. Day 198, August 5th. The Senate unanimously blocked Trump from being able to make recess appointments during the August break. The Senate will hold nine pro forma sessions and will not hold any legislative sessions until lawmakers return to Washington after Labor Day. And the Secret Service has vacated Trump Tower after a dispute between the government and Trump's company over the terms of its lease. The Secret Service had requested $26.8 million to protect Trump Tower. The government is also paying $130,000 a month to lease space in Trump Tower for a military office that supports the White House. Trump has not visited Trump Tower since he was inaugurated. And the FBI monitors social media on election day to track a suspected Russian disinformation campaign spreading fake news and identify possible disruptions to the vote. The FBI's monitoring of this news possibly crossed into unconstitutional territory given the primacy of the First Amendment. And a Republican donor is suing the GOP for fraud over the failed Obamacare repeal. The lawsuit alleges that the GOP raised millions of dollars in campaign funds knowing they weren't going to be able to overturn the ACA, representing, quote, a pattern of racketeering which involves massive fraud perpetuated on Republican voters and contributors as well as some independents and Democrats. Day 199, August 6th. Rod Rosenstein denied that the Justice Department is prosecuting journalists for leaking. We're after the leaker, not the journalist. We're after people who are committing crimes. The comments came two days after Sessions warned the culture of leaking must stop and that the Justice Department is reviewing guidelines that make it difficult for prosecutors to subpoena journalists about their sources. Investigators working for the special prosecutor, Robert Mueller, have asked the administration to hand over documents on Michael Flynn. They're looking to whether Flynn, the former national security advisor, was secretly paid by Turkey during the presidential campaign. And Mike Pence denied a New York Times report that he was positioning himself to run for president in 2020. 
Pence unusually has created his own political fundraising committee, signaling to major Republican donors that he's the heir apparent if Trump does not seek a second term. Pence called the report disgraceful and offensive, but did not point out any factual incorrections in it. Whatever fake news may come our may, our entire team will continue to focus all our efforts to advance the president's agenda and see him re-elected in 2020, Pence said in a statement. Any suggestion otherwise is both laughable and absurd. Day 200, August 7th. Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel argued in federal court today that it is illegal for the Trump administration to withhold public safety grant money from so-called sanctuary cities. Chicago is arguing Attorney General Jeff Sessions cannot hold back so-called burn grants from cities Trump complains aren't cooperating enough with U.S. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement officials. Sessions announced the Department of Justice will only provide grants to cities that allow the Department of Homeland Security access to local jails and to provide 48 hours notice before releasing anyone wanted for immigration violations. Trump has only filled about a fifth of the essential executive branch jobs. There are roughly 4,000 positions across the government and more than 1,200 require Senate confirmation. Trump has nominated just 277 people for these key posts. And the UN Security Council imposed punishing sanctions against North Korea over its repeated defiance of a ban on testing missiles and nuclear bombs. The sanctions could reduce the isolated country's already meager annual export revenue by $1 billion. That would be a third of its current total. North Korea reacted with belligerence to the sanctions, promising retaliation thousands of times over in a physical sense, and calling the sanctions a panicky American-led response to its missiles and nuclear weapons. Day 201, August 8th. The New York Times published a leaked report today that says the average temperature in the United States has risen rapidly and drastically since 1980, and recent decades have been the warmest of the past 1,500 years. The report also concludes climate change is man-made and is affecting Antarctica and Alaska at a rate twice that thought. The report was leaked because the authors feared the Trump administration would suppress it. Trump has yet to make any comment on the leaked report. In addition, The Guardian reported the USDA is censoring the use of the words climate change and advising staff to use the phrase weather extremes instead. An advisor to Trump told MSNBC that the bombing of a Minnesota mosque might be a fake hate crime. Trump's White House has yet to respond to the attack, which Minnesota Governor Mark Dayton labeled a hate crime and an act of terror. Gorka said, quote, we've had a series of crimes committed, alleged hate crimes by right-wing individuals in the last six months that turned out actually been propagated by the left. Sebastian Gorka's comments stunned local Muslim leaders. Trump has responded promptly to attacks in the past that reinforce an anti-Muslim narrative. And Trump is considering a plan to privatize the war in Afghanistan. The proposal would rely on 5,500 private contractors to advise Afghan combat forces as well as a 90-plane private air force. That plan would cost less than $10 billion a year, one quarter of which has been budgeted. The U.S. military has 8,400 troops in Afghanistan to train and guide local forces. They do not have a direct combat role. And Trump's Justice Department now supports Ohio's purging of inactive voters. Civil rights groups had challenged Ohio's process of removing thousands of inactive voters, arguing the purge is prohibited under the National Voter Registration Act. The Supreme Court is set to hear the case. Day 202, August 9th. Tensions in the Korean Peninsula are rising after Trump threatened to unleash fire and fury against North Korea if it endangers the United States. The rhetoric baldly invoking nuclear war alarmed his advisors who did not approve the messaging. Trump has repeatedly asked advisors about nuclear weapons, including asking why the USA had them if they were not to be used. Earlier Tuesday, it was revealed that North Korea has successfully miniaturized a nuclear warhead to fit on an ICBM and can theoretically reach targets in the USA. North Korea responded with a threatened first strike against the U.S. territory of Guam. 
and FBI agents raided the home of Trump's former campaign chairman late last month, using a search warrant to seize documents and other materials, according to people familiar with a council investigation into Russian meddling in the 2016 election. Federal agents appeared at Paul Manafort's home without advance warning in the pre-dawn hours of July 26th, the day after he met voluntarily with staff for the Senate Intelligence Committee. And Vice is reporting that twice a day, Trump gets a folder full of positive news about himself. Instead of top-secret intelligence or update on any legislative initiatives, he receives folders filled with screenshots of positive cable news pictures, tweets, and news stories. The document is prepared around 9.30 a.m. and a follow-up around 4.30 p.m. In the White House, the packet is referred to as the propaganda document. And one of Trump's evangelical advisors, Texas megachurch pastors Robert Jeffress, released a statement saying the president has the moral authority to, quote, take out North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Said Jeffers, when it comes to how we should deal with evildoers, the Bible in the book of Romans is very clear. God has endowed rulers full power to use whatever means necessary, including war, to stop evil. In the case of North Korea, God has given Trump authority to take out Kim Jong-un. And Trump has also launched a Facebook news program featuring former CNN host Kaylee McEnany. The programming 90-second segment streamed on the social media site is uncomfortably close to state television and is full of pro-Trump propaganda. Trump's approval rating has tumbled to just 33% in the latest Quinnipiac poll, reducing Trump's support to just barely his core base. Trump railed against fake polls after the poll was released. These are the Trump Diaries. Radio Free Bridgeport spoke to Brian Meyer about the coups in Brazil and Venezuela. Meyer untangled the legacy of the World Cup on Brazil and how American influence has made the region poorer and tougher. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday drive time at 4 p.m. Welcome back to Radio Free Bridgeport here on WLPN 105.5 FM. We have a special guest calling in today. Jamie, tell us a little bit about who we're going to talk to. We're going to be talking to Brian Meyer, a longtime Olympic contributor. Brian is in Sao Paulo, Brazil. He is an expert on all things South America, and he's going to talk to us today a little bit about what is really going on with first the takeover of Brazil by uh, a right-wing coup, and also a little bit about what's going on in, in neighboring Venezuela. Brian, how are you today? Pretty good, thanks. It's Brian, nice to be on chance. Lumpen Radio for the first time ever. As you mentioned, I've been writing for Lumpen since 1995, so it's a pleasure. Yeah, Brian, I heard you on This Is Hell. I was very disappointed we didn't get you first. Well, I've actually been going on there for several... The first time I was on This Is Hell was like 1999, so that would have been hard. Been hard to beat. Thanks for joining us. So, Brian, we we hear a lot of things in the United States. First of all, take us, you know, the kind of thumbnail thing I would say to our, our listeners is that Brazil obviously has been in a tremendous amount of chaos over the last decade, but a short thumbnail, Lula was a very popular president. He's been charged and convicted on corruption charges, but his programs brought millions of people out of poverty in your country. He was followed by Dilma Rousseff, who was a less popular, uh, but apparently incorruptible figure, uh, and who was toppled by uh, what you have called a right-wing coup led by the president, uh, Michael Temer, who himself also has been accused of gross corruption and just this last week uh, was declined to be prosecuted by lawmakers who feared, uh, if I'm reading this correctly, that he uh, would bring more instability to the country. Uh, you, you have an inc- incredible insight into this, and we in the United States really, unfortunately, don't get as much news on Brazil. So can you try to take our listeners really through the kind of web of uh, and this whole mess that, that's going on down there? Yeah, sure. Um, starting back with Lula. Uh, Lula was the, first of all, Brazil has a long history, like all countries in Latin America, it has a long history of U.S. intervention, coups, 
manipulation of elections, manipulation of the economy, and a real lack of autonomy, which is best exemplified by the U.S.-backed military dictatorship, which uh, happened in 1964 after President Django Goulart tried to raise the minimum salary significantly and enact a kind of uh, agrarian reform. And so for 21 years, uh, Brazilians had no autonomy whatsoever. There was no sovereignty in Brazil. Um, they had a U.S.-friendly military dictatorship. And then uh, when the country opened up in 1985, uh, there was a, pr a period in which basically several successive presidents were all the ones favored by the U.S. State Department. And Lula was the first president in the history of Brazil to make serious raises to the minimum wage. He raised the, when he took office, the minimum salary was about 49 U.S. dollars a month. When he left office, it was 315 U.S. dollars a month. It's a major, and this, this raising of the minimum wage uh, brought 35 million people above the poverty line. And uh, he was the first president in the history of Brazil to make significant raises to minimum salary who was not thrown out of office in a coup. Although they tried, uh, they tried sticking corruption charges on him on a weekly basis from 2005 until the current date. Uh, he was, as you mentioned, he was tried and convicted of what? He was convicted of uh, getting illegal reforms on a luxury apartment in a beach resort called Guarujá, about 30 miles from his home. But they were unable to prove not only that he owned the apartment, because they couldn't find any documentation. The only documentation they found was, um, said, says that it's owned by a construction company, OAS. And they couldn't only just, they could not only prove that he didn't own the apartment, they couldn't prove that he ever visited the apartment. And so this is the corruption charge that's been treated in the, in the northern media as if it, you know, he's finally been found guilty of this massive corruption. Whereas the government that took over last year after President Dilma Rousseff was illegally impeached over an infraction called fiscal peddling, which is not even an impeachable offense in Brazil, and that she was subsequently proven innocent over. The government that took over has been implicated in scandal after scandal. The current president was caught on video and audio tape, receiving millions of dollars in bribes and ferreting them away in a Swiss bank account. And he went up for a confidence vote on impeachment proceedings last week. And unfortunately, the same people who, who were talking about God and family when it, and ethics and morals about corruption when it came to the Dilma Rousseff impeachment proceedings, they all defended Temer because most of them are from the same governing coalition. 30% uh, of the current Congress is, is, on, charge for, is uh, on charge for corruption. And... Uh, Around 30, 35% of Congress and Senate are former military dictatorship era government officials. So it shows that there, there's never really been a moment when Brazilian people have had full uh, power over their own destiny. Uh, because even as the country opened up for a democracy, 
there was amnesty for all of the criminals of the military dictatorship era, and many of them maintained power. So, for example, Lula and Dilma uh, built a kind of social welfare state during 13 years of their, their rule before Dilma was impeached. They opened up the federal university system for affirmative action, better than U.S. affirmative action because it was class-based and uh, ethnically based. So it didn't favor like Afro-Brazilian middle class, it favored working class people. They, they made a lot of progress on women's rights and things like that, but they never had control of Congress or the Senate. And in order to govern, they had to enter in coalition with a bunch of corrupt political parties. And these parties ended up basically stabbing them in the back and taking power for themselves. And that's the situation we have in Brazil right now. In the last year since the coup, five million people have slid below the poverty line. They've decimated worker rights. They've halted annual minimum wage increases. They've fro frozen public education and health spending. And it hasn't really helped the economy. The economy is still, uh, unemployment is still going up. So it's, it's kind of depressing, really. That was the short answer. <laughs> Brian, why, why is the United States then propping up a government which seems systematically corrupt? I mean, what, what is, I guess, I, you know, in the, in the pre-Trump era, I would have been a little more credulous. Now in the Trump era, I, I can completely understand why Donald Trump would prop up a corrupt government. But just from a, an intellectual point of view, why, why is the United States interfering in Brazil? Brazil seems so far away to many of us here in the United States. And, and in reality, it's a, it's a giant country and it isn't. But can you give us a little insight as to why the United States wants to uh, interfere with these economies in, in South America? Yeah, I mean, the, the, it goes back to the Monroe Doctrine when the United States government declared that it had the right to interfere in the uh, political process in every country in Latin America. And so, I mean, there's been dozens of coup d'etats sponsored by the U.S., dozens of U.S. military invasions in countries in Latin America. There was a time when Woodrow Wilson was president when the U.S. invaded Mexico so many times during the Mexican Civil War that both sides officially asked the U.S. to stop invading. I mean, first, you just have to look at the history. Now, why would the U.S. be interested in Brazil? It's one of the largest petroleum producers in the world. It's the largest sugar producer in the world. It's the largest beef producer in the world. It has massive mineral uh, resources. Uh, alumina, which is a primary ingredient in aluminum, nickel, gold, things like that. And, and it also has a large consumer market with a history of protective tariffs against imported goods coming from the United States. And so there's a lot of reasons why the U.S. is interested in neoliberalizing the Brazilian economy. And, you know, one of the first things that happened after Michel Temer illegally took office is they opened up, uh, massively opened up privatization of uh, Brazil's offshore oil reserves. And so, I mean, if you look at all of the top 10 petroleum producers in the world, maybe Canada is the only one that the U.S. hasn't tried to invade or you know, tried to influence a coup, and it's pushing for a coup d'etat in Venezuela right now. You know, it's it's what's it been doing in the Middle East, everywhere where there's this, where there's petroleum right now, the U.S. is involved. But as far as the corruption going on, why would the U.S. support a corrupt government? The military dictatorships in Latin America were massively corrupt. There was no transparency whatsoever. There was no bidding process for contracts, and the U.S installed all of those governments. So the, the U.S. has a long history of supporting corruption. And then another point that I think is really 
important to drive home because I see a lot in kind of like liberal media like New York Times and The Guardian, even some left, ostensibly left media like Jacobin, I see a lot of like hand-wringing about how Brazil is the most corrupt country in the world, Brazilians are so corrupt. A lot of the corruption allegations and charges against Brazilian politicians are for things that are not illegal in the United States, like anonymous corporate campaign donations. That's a crime in Brazil. And you know that's rampant everywhere, so of course that's going to keep going on. Uh, another thing is that in your average Brazilian city, you cannot have no-bid contracts like you do in Chicago, like you have historically in Chicago, you know. So there's a lot of things, first of all, that wouldn't even be considered corrupt in the U.S. But, so I, I, I categorically reject this concept that, like, Brazil is this perennially corrupt place full of people who have some kind of individual character fault that makes them corrupt, you know, uh, when a lot of the corruption was caused by the U.S. in the first place and when some of the corruption crimes aren't even illegal in the U.S. Because in the U.S., they've legalized a lot of behavior that's considered corrupt in other countries. TechScene Chicago spoke to Bill Allen about agile methodology and the shift in coding that has followed. Allen, who runs a popular agile meetup group, also spoke about the tech world's need to expand and embrace different communities. TechScene Chicago with Melanie Adcock airs every Friday at 1 p.m. Our first guest today is Bill Allen. He is um, the founder of the um, Agile Innovation Labs, as well as founder and one of the organizers of the Chicago Agile Open Meetup, uh, Open Space Meetup Group. And he is here to talk with us about um, all things Agile, as well as his meetup group. Uh, Bill, welcome to the show today. Melanie, thank you for having me. We're so glad that you're here. Um, now, the, the, the first thing that I'd like to do is break down the meaning of this term Agile. Um, what, why, and who? Um, what, what is Agile? Um, who, why use Agile? And, and who uses Agile? So, uh, Melanie, regarding the what is Agile, I have a very short answer for you. I have a very long answer, if you will allow me. The short answer is this. It's a collection of lightweight software methodologies. Um, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a more in-depth answer uh, that I can, I can offer. Let's, let's hear that, too. So if we're going to go into the more in-depth answer, I have to talk about this thing called waterfall. There's okay. a waterfall model of software development. Um, it's what's called a heavyweight practice. If you mm-hmm. think of how a waterfall cascades from one level to another, that's the way traditionally software development had been practiced, mm-hmm. uh, where the work was sequential and flowed from one level to another to another, different phases. Mm-hmm. The phases were traditionally conception, initiation, analysis, design, development, production, and maintenance. Mm-hmm. Each one was a phase that was completed before the next phase could begin. I now, see. there are a couple of immediate difficulties that come with that model. Mm-hmm. One is there's a big feedback loop, a very long feedback loop between conception and production. You wait a long time before you get a chance to have any inspection point on mm-hmm. the software that's built. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second challenge is uh, that uh, Mm. Wow, I just lo- uh, I lost uh, I lost a thought. This is yeah. a second challenge. That's okay. We'll we'll find it. We're we're good at that around here. Okay. But uh, yeah. Um, okay. Oh, yeah. because it takes so long. There's often cost mm-hmm. overruns and time mm-hmm. overruns that they get uh, 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 lost, especially when it comes time to people to ask for changes. Mm-hmm. Because again, I said in waterfall, each phase is locked. 
But mm-hmm. I, I come back and I say, well, listen, I want to add this requirement to it. Well, I'm developing now. So uh-huh. to come back and add this requirement to it becomes very expensive because the team has moved to the next phase. I see. Okay. Well, and then so now, so why why use Agile? It's to um, enable more flexibility then. Uh, that and, and, and a number of other things. So a little more history around uh, the topic Agile. Uh, February 2017, 2011. Oh, my goodness. I'm really bad with dates. Please, I apologize. That's okay. February 2001, 17 individuals got together in Utah. They came from various aspects of the software development community. Mm -hmm. And they said, there's a real problem with how software is developed today. We can get better at it. Mm -hmm. So uh, they each represented different factions of the software industry. And they didn't want to have any allegiance to any one of their practices. And they kind of looked at, uh, here's an opportunity to to blend uh, into a variety of outcomes. Mm -hmm. They came up with four values and 12 principles, and they called this new thing they created Agile. Mm. You can find out more about it at agilemanifesto.org. Again, mm-hmm. four, four values uh, and, and, and 12, um, 12 uh, principles. That's very interesting. Now, now who, who uses Agile? Uh, anyone who wants to build something successfully. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> because again, uh, tra- tra- traditionally challenges with building big things. So let's look at different ways in which we can build it so we can be successful around building it. Got it. Well, now, um, there within within this um, this term w- that we're referring to is is agile development or agile methodology methodology and process. There are several different types of the agile methodology. See, I, I was reading up before the show. I wanted to know what this was all about. So I learned. I saw that there were several different kinds of agile methodologies within this. Um, can you tell us about those too? So um, the practitioners who came together in February 2001 came from various um, uh, practices, methodologies, workflows. Uh, Today, uh, some of the uh, leading uh, uh, practices that are out there are Scrum. Scrum. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've heard of that. Have you heard of XP? Mm -mm. Uh, I haven't. XP is an acronym for Extreme Programming. Oh, okay. XP. I'm writing right, that right, one down. Right, okay, right. hang on. There's Lean, there's Kanban, there's feature-driven development, there's dynamic system development uh, method, there's Crystal, there's adaptive software development. There are lots. Uh, in terms of the ones that are heavily practiced or uh, used a lot in industry today, I would say that it's uh, Scrum, mm-hmm. uh, Extreme Programming, uh, probably Lean and Kanban, those four. Okay. Wow, that's a that's a lot of different um, a lot of different variations that people have options now. Now, Bill, how how did you get started with Agile, and and what what led you to be a developer? Um, can I answer those in reverse order? Let's talk about developer first. Sure. Um, so in my in my LinkedIn bio, I have a a couple of paragraphs, and I want to just read the first one. It says, "As a child of the '60s." reading fiction and watching films where computers were often characterized as omniscient, controlling, mm-hmm. or sophisticated, Bill engaged in a lifelong quest to demystify computers for himself and now others. Mm-hmm. The story behind that paragraph is, I'm a kid, 10, 12 years old, I'm looking at black and white TV, and there were often movies or television shows where um, a decision had to be made, something had to be found, and you see whirling tape drives, you see cards moving through a machine, you see someone running around with a card and saying, we have the answer. The computer gave us the answer. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting there saying, what is a computer and why is it so magical that it can answer questions? Mm -hmm. And I wanted to find that out. So uh, 
through high school, those opportunities didn't exist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but uh, I studied uh, computer science and electrical engineering in, 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 in college. And mm-hmm. I've continued on this uh, quest to understand computers, what they are, uh, why they're beneficial, uh, he uses them, why, uh, how, how to make them easier, and, and everything else. Hmm, cool. And then, and then what about Agile? Um, you know, the being a developer is one thing, but then Agile is a, a subset within that. What, what led you uh, throughout your career as a developer to focus on this, uh, the Agile methodologies? So it was conceived in 2001. I didn't come into the space until 2010. So I kind of lagged by nine mm-hmm. years. I'd never heard of it. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm working in a financial institution uh, big, successful, that's going to make money regardless of how good they are. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of architects came up with the concept that we still need to be better. You know, we own the industry, but we need to be better. And we brought in um, an individual to train teams on agile practices. Mm-hmm. The individuals, individual said, listen, I can come as much as you want, but if you're going to be successful with this in the long term, you need to build this in-house. You need to have some kind of longevity and connection in, in t- inside of your organization uh, to be successful with this. My managing director uh, recognized uh, something in either questions that I asked or abilities that I had and presented the opportunity to me. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Yeah.